I'm Garrett McQueen. I'm Scott Blankenship. And this is Triloquy True and Real Stories from the Fringes of Classical Music. All right, Scott, so this is um, actually our first two-parter. So um, on the last Opus of Triloquy, um, I had a conversation with maestro Brandon Keith Brown. Uh, For folks who uh, happen not to catch the last Opus of Triloquy, how about you uh, bring them up to speed? Last time on Triloquy, Brandon (laughs) Keith Brown. (laughs) You never let me do anything I want to. (laughs) Um, So last time we talked with Brandon Keith Brown, who um, has, uh, as he mentioned, not only does uh, his color precede him in his work when he goes to uh, conduct an orchestra, uh, there's also some things that he's written that have preceded him in that way. Um, his uh, story about uh, working at Brown University and being fired from there. And here we are. Yeah. So um, right now he's over uh, in Germany where he's, you know, had the opportunity to uh, conduct a number of orchestras. Um, You know, he's even traveled beyond Germany uh, at this point, as uh, you may have heard in the last Opus of Triloquy. Um, And uh, in in this um, conversation, uh, I, I sit with him and um, talk about a few things. You know, we 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 discuss the uh, implications of race in Germany, um, how race relates with class, which I thought was uh, really interesting. And we, you know, even end up actually getting to talk about a little music because, you know, after all, he, it is classical music um, that uh, that he loves. And and even his take on that, you know, the discussion of the canon, I thought mm. was uh, pretty interesting. What did you think, Scott? You know how when um, a few opuses ago when Kalena Boval was on, mm-hmm. she told a story about uh, a young black boy that went up and was like mimicking her on the podium sure, and sure. how he improved. Mm-hmm. And we talk a lot about that on the podcast, about how if you see someone doing something that looks like you, then you go, okay, this is for me and I can you know, be interested or, or want sure. to do this. Sure. Um, he brought up a really good point about being there in the concert hall that I hadn't thought of. And, you know, I feel, um, uh, kind of silly that I didn't think of the perspective. If you have a black conductor on the podium, then perhaps, uh, he wouldn't be asked to move in the concert hall, you know, like, uh, you know, that got into your conversation about being, uh, you know, what is acceptable behavior? You know, if, um, oh, sure. uh, if you are seen as, Oh, you like classical music or your conductor, then you're not a threat. Mm-hmm. So that, you know, I, I really think that there's something there that people you pay attention to that part of the, the conversation. Yeah. So, um, uh, as I, um, may have said, may, may or may not have said, uh, before we got into the conversation, uh, on the last opus, you know, uh, uh, some things may be challenging, but I really, uh, encourage you, um, to really, uh, take his perspective, um, as, you know, his truth and, and what we really need to listen to, um, not judge, but, but really, um, you know, take and learn what we can from it to, to help us make this world of a uh, so-called classical music, a little uh, more equitable, uh, and equal for us all. So, uh, here we go. A part two, uh, of my conversation with maestro Brandon Keith Brown. Maestro Brown, it's great to uh, have you back here on Triloquy. And as this airs, it's actually your birthday. So happy birthday, Brandon. Oh, thank you very much. <laughs> it, it must be difficult to celebrate a, a birthday under, you know, all of these circumstances. But I, but I hope you have a good one nonetheless. I like the solitude. So it's, it's 
not bad, but um, I wish I could go out a little more, but nothing's open except the grocery store. Sure, sure. Um, you know, and, and a lot of folks here um, are, are really curious about uh, the way, you know, this COVID-19 pandemic is impacting, you know, life um, over on that side of the pond. But w- would you mind quickly just providing a, a perspective on that? Well, you know, as an artist, um, I've had an engagement canceled in May. So a, a lot of us are worried about engagements if you're a freelance artist. Um, luckily, Germany feels and knows that art is essential. You know, they've already lost uh, billions of dollars. It came out in the paper. Um, they feel they're going to lose even more um, from not having, um, you know, concerts. The Bayreuth Festival has been canceled uh, for the summer. Everything is is being canceled. However, the uh, the Federal Republic is providing grants basically for all artists. Uh, they have these multi-million dollar um, grants that they have um, passed and everybody can apply for small $5,000 um, $5, euro um, grants to help you know get them through a, a few months of this. Mm-hmm. So I, that's the same thing I think everybody all over the world is, is experiencing. Um, there's, in, in Berlin and Germany, it's not like you go to the store always and they have lots of food. Like when things run out, they run out and sure. they don't replace them. Like in America, I, I doubt you're going to have food shortages, but there's, there's not a lot of food on the shelf. Um, of course, there's absolutely no toilet paper, but where in the world can you find toilet paper today? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> people have, people have hoarded it. Um, but, um, and, and there's of course no sanitizer, but they, a lot of the stores you go to, they just run out of things. So I try to go, um, to stores on the peripheral, I go to the Turkish markets. They tend to have food because not everybody's shopping at the Turkish uh, mm. markets um, and the Turkish neighborhoods. Um, so that's uh, that's that's a really good idea for anybody in Germany who's who's going to listen to this podcast is to go to the <laughs> Turkish neighborhoods. Sure, um, sure. And um, I just don't I don't go out. I mean, less people are on the train. I have asthma. And I have allergies, and so I'm really quite uh, quite frightened of this. But luckily, um, uh, Chancellor Merkel and the government of Germany has been taking this very seriously with, with lots of testing, mm. and they've shut everything down, all of the hairdressers. Everything will be closed until the 20th of April. I think that that will probably be extended as well. We'll be sure to uh, stay safe over there. Uh, so, Thank so, you. so, folks who um, uh, may not have heard um, part one of our conversation uh, on the last opus of Triloquy, you sort of uh, went through your background and how that led you to Brown University, and then the the story about um, you know your infamous firing from that institution. Um, so now, you know, we're we're in the present. You're over there uh, across the pond uh, in in Europe in in Germany, and an interesting question. Um, was posed to me. So um, I'm sure you're familiar um, with, with Josephine Baker and her story of leaving the United States for France because she just couldn't artistically express herself without the cloud of racism over her in the state here in the state. So she went over there to, to live the rest of um, her life. Is is d- does that idea does that philosophy apply um, to your journey to Europe at all? I, I thought that was an interesting connection that someone made with me. Well, I just want to be honest with you. I'm I'm generally aware of Nina Simone. I'm somewhat more aware of James Baldwin, but I'm not sure. specifically aware of Josephine Baker's story. Well, it's and the so, same um, as James, Bal- James Baldwin's story. Well, I, is his, yeah. Well, I'm sure that all of us are similar to a degree because 
Um, it's a similar story with uh, Dean Dixon. It's a similar story with George Burt. Dean Dixon was a famous, the famous conductor who um, was the first conductor. Um, he was chief conductor of the Frankfurt Radio Orchestra. George Bird from my home state of North Carolina was um, the first conductor to conduct the Gavon House Orchestra. Dean Dixon conducted at the Wiener Stadtoper, and this was all during um, um, the 1960s, mm. by the way. And both of these people, uh, George Bird left Juilliard because of racism, and he went to um, Paris Conservatoire and studied with Carrion and became a protege of Carrion. And then um, Dean Dixon left also, and then he became music director in Australia and lots of places. But he didn't ter- conduct in the United States until like the last two years of his life. So it's a similar sort of African American. Um, there's an African-American uh, diaspora in Europe of artists, classical artists, out of necessity. Same thing with Hazel Harrison. I think, I don't right. know if we mentioned that last time. You sure did, um, yeah. Yeah, okay, the pianist. So it's it's always a similar story. We we come here because, there. Well, there, I think it's because there's not the history of racism, the fact that, you know, in America we were animals, basically, until the end of the Civil War was 1865 and we became citizens in 1868. And so at least coming here, we were union, uh, human, which allowed us to be looked at as artists um, much more readily. Um, and I think particularly in the early tw- part of the 20th century, I think it was something very interesting to have um, African-American classical um, artists come, especially if you were very good. It was something very interesting. Um, in my particular case, um, Germany was the first country to validate my talent uh, through the Schulte competition. Mm. And, um, you know, I, I, it was a big deal at the time. I don't think it's a big deal now, but it still carries a lot of clout with German orchestras. It's a a type of elevation. Um, when you mention that, um, or when you apply for something or when you conduct, they see it in your bio. Um, and so to, to have my talent and ability validated here, an immense amount to me, then I started getting engagements with very good orchestras, what we consider A-level orchestras by the size and budget of the orchestra, mm-hmm. and also quality, where none of that happened in America. And, um, you know, to be fair, I always like to look at things um, as well-rounded as I possibly can. Uh, Americans have a tendency to be very snotty towards American conductors. And so the, the thing is we're supposed to go to Europe, get a career, and then come back. And they will be more um, accepted. Um, this happens for a handful of white conductors who are able to do that very successfully, but it really doesn't happen with the black ones hmm. um, um, so much. Um, of course, we are we're less in number, and we're given less um, opportunities because we haven't been able to we haven't been able to um, we haven't been granted access to the center of classical music um, culture. In America, there's a lot of uh, reasons for that, but um, it's it's just much easier here um, to have your art validated. It, it doesn't mean that I start from zero when I step on the podium. I still have you know a lot more to prove than my white colleagues, and there there are problems. Right, you and, start you know, below zero, just to be clear. Of course, to, we yeah. start, of course, we start below zero. You know, we always have to work at least twice as hard or three times as hard. Um, but, you know, but when you finally get to conduct and show something, I, I, I like to think that people are, are, 
are, are giving me a, a chance. You know, I'm, I'm still, I'm, I call myself an optimistic realist. I want good things to happen. I realize most of the time they don't. But um, I, I think the orchestras here are, are much more open. I know that they're much more open um, to black talent, you know, because there's been a number of young uh, Af African-American conductors that have come here who've held positions and guest conducted. There's a lot of problems, of course, uh, with racism in Germany every day. Um, all the time, uh, lots of things that um, are going on. Um, but music, I, I think one of the biggest things, and I'm starting to be annoyed by this, when you tell somebody you're a conductor, it elevates you immediately on a, to the highest social status. And it's very annoying because, you know, I could be a concert audience member and they don't want to sit next to me and they move their chair and they move their purse over if they're a woman because they're afraid I might steal it. Sure. And then, you know, they talk to me or something or they see me with the score and they suddenly their faces light up and they smile, you know, because they feel safer somehow. It's just like um, that, you know, since I'm it seems like I'm cultured, that I'm less likely to rob them. Yeah, you're, you're you're a safe you're, you're a safe. I'm safe. Negro. <laughs> I'm, exactly. And, you know, and I've been reading a lot. I read a lot about sociology and I was reading an article um, a, a sociologist article, I won't get into details, but she gave a vignette about a black man and he was a business person. And he said, every time he got stopped by the police, he would turn on Vivaldi's Four Seasons. That's, it's funny that you say that because I, I've tended to do the same thing when I've been pulled over by the police. I think the last time I was pulled over, I turned on some Hindemith though, to be fair. I, whenever I went to the Peoria, wherever I went to the Peoria Symphony, and I have no problem saying this because um, my second year in the Peoria Symphony, I just got stopped by the police every time I went. And finally, I quit the orchestra. I mean, I was pulled over in the Krispy Kreme parking lot after, because you know they had the hot light on, right? right. You know the hot yeah. light in Krispy Kreme. Oh, of course. Okay, you have to go. <laughs> so, um, and I, I'm from North Carolina, so yeah. it, uh, come on. And so I got, I got pulled over by undercover cops in a soccer mom minivan in the Krispy Kreme drive-through. And uh, that was really much the, pretty much the last time. But I always had classical music, you know, blasting because that's yeah. the only music that I, so, so, so that's the experience that I have as a, as a black conductor in Germany. It's a, it's a, it's a different experience, but I shouldn't have to tell people I'm a conductor in order to be respected, you know? Right. And you know, the, the safety that people feel when they see you are a part of the classical um, music profession, you know, that, that, that safety, that camaraderie, you know, as I don't have to tell you does not always, you know, come when you're in the, in the mix of it, you know, and, and you've written and talked so much about uh, the intrinsic racism within classical music um, over in Germany. And we're going to get into that in a, uh, here in a bit, um, but but one thing you said that, uh, uh, that that struck a chord with me, you know, you talked about the essential nature of the arts in Germany, you know, and, and these funds that are are, are being put out. Um, when we talked about uh, the difficulties you had at Brown, um, you know, you, you talked about how they, they treat it just sort of as a, as a sort of club and then how that culture sort of permeates the arts in the United States in general as this extra thing, as this thing that goes, you know, on top of the things that are actually essential. Does, um, does the culture of the arts being more essential in Germany um, absolve some of the the racial ch racial challenges um, within classical music culture, or, or or does it multiply them? Well, that's a good question. What we have to think about 
there's a major difference is that the the people of color population in Germany is much smaller than it is in um, in America. Sure. And there isn't the history of the civil rights movement. You know, the the black population here, I believe, is one percent, and in America, it's it's a little over twelve twelve um, percent. And so most of the people around you every day are are white. And I, you know, and I talk to white musicians and white friends. They say they never see any black people at all mm. um, in their lives, which is true because the black people live in, you know, vetting and and um, certain areas. So I think a a better thing to talk about is the differences between class and and quite frankly, I'm I'm not so well read on. Uh, the sociology of class because it gets extremely complicated. It's sure. I think it's easier to look at um, the relationship between classical music and class and racism in America because class often parallels racism, exactly. racial issues, and so exactly. it's easy to um, hypothesize. But in Europe, they in Germany they don't take a racial census, and so you it, you don't have the data so much on race, and so um, so I have to go off of experience, but. If we want to talk about classism, my very first uh, concert that I did in Karlsruhe with the, the Badische Staatskapelle, which is a very large theater, um, it was in a church, and there were farmers sitting upstairs, you know, yeah, with the farmers' hats, and then downstairs you had, you know, people that were a little bit more, a lot more formally dressed, and and this sort of thing, and obviously those tickets were more expensive and that sort of thing. Um, if you ask the homeless, the, a, a homeless German person on the street, do you know who Wagner is? They probably will know who Wagner is. And uh, I was talking to a British friend, and, and she said, Britain is not like that. And, and we know America is not like that either. Sure. You know, they wouldn't even know how to say his, his name. Um, the, the thing is that these people came, a lot of these composers came from Germany, and they, it, and music there's over 100, I think there's 132 orchestras in Germany. Nearly every town has some sort of orchestra. They, they heard an orchestra from a very early age. They may not like classical music, but they know it by proximity, <laughs> you right, know, to, right. to the orchestras. They know Bayreuth is very, it's something to be coveted, you know. They know the Berlin, they, well, I, I'm not giving my opinion, but they know and feel that the Berlin Philharmonic is one of the absolute, you know, best orchestras in the world, or it's the best orchestra in the world. They know that. They they know about certain orchestras, but they don't even have to step foot in the hall. And we don't have that in America because the classical music is imported. And when you import something, it loses a lot of its essentiality, you know. So for classical music to be such uh, an institutional pillar there, it must be all that more difficult um, to to challenge the the culture. Well, German German culture is hard to challenge because basically Germany is the land of Germans, and they really want to maintain um, their culture as being the only culture. And so the 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 idea is that you know the chancellor just asked this question, and I like her very much, but she asked the question after the Hanau massacre where all these Turkish people were killed in a hookah, hookah joint by some right-wing guy who was after blacks, Asians, and Turkish. He said he wanted to get everyone. And um, the Chancellor Merkel asked, at what point does someone become German? Because she 
understands in the discourse that Turkish people are not counted as German. It, really, only people who are, you know, white are counted as German. But I say that's not the right question to ask. The question is, why should you want us to assimilate and integrate? Why should we all have to be imitation, um, imitation German? Why can't we take our culture with us? Why can't we take our cultural repertoire and our narrative with us and have it honored? And in Germany, unfortunately, unfortunately, German culture does not allow um, for people to retain their culture, like, a many, like many societies. Um, America has a lot of problems, but you can you come to America only speaking Spanish and you can live your whole life in America only speaking Spanish and, 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 or mostly Spanish, you could become a citizen still speaking mostly Spanish. And you can't do that in Germany. There isn't this, there isn't, I, in my opinion, I wrote an article on this, on the word multiculti because people like to claim Berlin is so multiculti just because Berlin has lots of types of people. As in multicultural. Multicultural, yes. Uh, thank you, Genau. Yeah, <laughs> thank you for saying that. Uh, as in, as in, uh, lots of different types of people, but actually, these people don't aren't friends together, and they're not accepted. Um, the, but these these people aren't allowed to retain who they are when they move to Germany, and that's that's the biggest biggest problem that keeps Germany from reaching its full potential. Its superpower, Germany's superpower is classical music. It is by far, they have a sickness for classical music. You will not believe the number of concerts. There's seven full-time orchestras in Berlin. Where else is that the case? I, maybe Nowhere Tokyo I can think has, of, sure. Um, Tokyo, Tokyo has a lot, uh, but this is, this is extraordinary. You know, three full-time opera companies, three massive full-time opera companies. So classical music is a sickness, but if they could use this, the fact that music connects, music is meant to connect people and to share empathy and develop empathy between people that are not like us, you know, if they could use that to fight their greater scourge, which is racism, um, in my opinion, this, this country would, oh my God, it, it would definitely be one of the best countries in the world. How could, how could those organizations um, begin to do that if the, the, the people are not there, if the musicians aren't in the orchestra, or, or as I'm sure you would agree, if the Black um, folks are not on the podium? How, how, how can that conversation even begin? Well, it's, you know, it's a similar thing with the United States. I mean, people have to be willing to become comfortable with being very, very uncomfortable. You know, after Hanau happened, uh, not one orchestra went to Hanau to play and not one orchestra had a concert, specific concert in honor of the Hanau victims. And for me, that was, it made me angry because that was a, a, a really a big lost opportunity to show how only music can rebuild trust, um, how music can best, in my opinion, help people grieve and how music can bring us together in times of great pain. And, you know, if an orchestra had gone to the community and had a concert, think about who would come to the concert. White people would come, Turkish people would come. They would come and communicate together. And maybe they wouldn't speak, who knows, but they would stand side to side together. There would at least be this proximity and this fellowship through sound. You know, and I know maybe that sounds naive and it sounds, you know, like purple prose or whatever. But 
that is what music, that's the job of music. That's the job of musicians. That's the job of orchestras. That's what we should be doing when these types of things happen. And, and so we had this massacre that divided German society um, you know, so much. And people were so upset and angry, angry about this. And then, you know, in a few months, people are going to forget all about it. You know, the, this virus is happening now. It's being spoken of uh, much less by mainstream media. But the problems are still there. And, and even now you have the exacerbation of um, Asians and Asian musicians uh, who are being attacked. Right. Um, literally, literally attacked uh, physically, verbally. Um, lots of... Um, anti-Asian propaganda that is on the, the internet. Um, a cellist, Eugene um, Lipschwitz, uh, the solo cello of the Hamburg Symphoniker, um, wrote that uh, something like Italy is in its condition because they had, quote-unquote, helpers or help from China, and that this was the Chinese virus. And, uh, you know, he did this yesterday. It's all over Facebook. It's everywhere. The orchestra gave a very tone-deaf response that had nothing to do with the racial implications of what he said. Um, and, uh, you know, the Shanghai Quartet fired their second violinist for making racial comments about uh, the Chinese and, and the, uh, the virus, which I think is a good thing to do. But I don't think uh, this orchestra is going to fire him, which is the best thing to do, to say, no, we don't support people who are racist. Um, taxpayers shouldn't support people who are racist because their orchestras are funded by taxpayers. Um, so now Asians are getting a, a lot of the same racism that black people get every day that we get all the time, but that's not being covered in the media. It's not. And so if people in power have to be willing to become very uncomfortable with being uh, very comfortable with being uncomfortable and discuss these um, discuss systemic racism. And if I may say, you um, are very comfortable with making people uncomfortable, <laughs> especially through the, the many articles you write, the very pointed pieces that you write that really point out issues like you've laid out, you know, the the uh, the racism we're seeing against Asian musicians now, you know, the, the, the racism that's always been there against uh, black and brown uh, individuals. Um, when you think about your catalog of, of writings, is there one that um, you think is uh, is a real standout or one that you would really hope more people could digest and consume so that they understand more of what you're talking about and trying to call out? Oh, gosh. Uh, you know... I know it's like asking no, your favorite child, but... <laughs> no, not really, because I consider myself like such a baby writer and that I have to ask permission from people. I guess... Um, I guess uh, the, the article that I recently wrote on de deservingness in classical music. Yeah. This article was talking about my journey or my, I'm still on this journey. I'm not in the road of trying to, to justify that I'm deserving enough to be in this field without white people telling me that I am. And it talks about how white people define who is deserving, who is in, um, in and who is out of classical music as society. And it talks about how if we keep allowing only white people to decide, um, black people will ever be allowed in the center. And it also talks about the fact that black people are taught, you know, we're mostly taught in white schools by white teachers, you know, classical music in particular, we're taught by white teachers. And we are 
ingratiated with the idea that whites are the sole arbiters of classical music. And, and even though we may not say that, but it's subconscious, you know, it's just like the media's influence, our, our, where we go to school, our schooling, our teachers, we have a, you know, subconscious lessons, uh, sociological lessons that we learn. And this has an effect on our confidence. Um, and therefore, it also has an effect on our performance and our potential. If we constantly have to question ourselves and we constantly have to wonder if we're, if we're deserving to be in this profession, if we're good enough, these are a lot of the questions that my white conducting colleagues in graduate school at Peabody and many other programs, they didn't have to ask those questions. They just felt um, entitled to be in the profession. And, you know, and I, I think I've accomplished a certain number of things now, but I, I just never felt like I felt entitled to do anything in music. I looked at it as very much a privilege. And, um, and I, I've written a lot about, you know, I didn't have enough confidence even to apply for jobs until I met David Zimmerman in 2009. Right. You know, so honestly, the, I, I just started writing, you know, every time I write, it feels like I'm writing into a vacuum. I always feel like what I'm writing isn't relevant, um, that nobody will read it. Or sometimes with the article that I wrote on black concert trauma, on the, the um, black experience going to concerts, my experiences are so ubiquitous among black people mm -hmm. that I thought black people would just roll their eyes and go to the next. And it ended up being this viral sensation within four days. Um, this article, um, talking about the common experiences that we we've always had going to opera and and orchestra so i never know what is going to be interesting and popular um to people i i write from my own experience and perspective i i try to write through the black community i i don't represent necessarily um the black course, community. Yeah. i don't want i don't want to wear that hat but I do write through the, the black experience. And something else that I should add also, um, you have to understand that I, before Brown, I didn't talk about racism so much. Um, I didn't talk about the races, racial problems and issues uh, that I had. A lot of it I, I didn't even see. And I didn't notice these things. It wasn't until Brown where I realized fully even though I had experiences where police have put guns to my head at the traffic stop for no reason, just run up to my car and put guns to my head. I had lots of traumatic racial experiences, but I didn't realize until Brown that my color precedes my talent. And that sounds very stupid, but I'm finding a lot of people are the same with me, especially in classical music. There's a lot of black people that are like, why can't you, you're so talented. Why do you talk about these things? Why are you doing this? Because the next time I'm not making the situation any better for myself in this profession, if I remain silent and complicit in racism, what am I going to do? Wait for another Brown University situation where I'm told the very first day we hired you because you're black and not given any agency in the position, have students that physically assault me and just be fired because the white students didn't want to have discipline within the orchestra. And nobody observed my classes. And then there's a huge media frenzy where the dean says that I wasn't doing my job and all of these things. And he's allowed to do it because he's white in the position of power. 
and and also Brown is an institutionally racist organization because they were founded with slaves and they're they they have a diversity program which is basically trying to counteract the bad media of um, uh, that came out about it being found out uh, to it was founded by the sale of slaves. So I, I didn't research this. I didn't research the demographics of the faculty or the students. These things were my fault because I didn't understand that my race comes first. And I think a lot of black people, they know this and they understand this and they realize this very early on. And, and God knows I was told this, but it really, really didn't change me until after this experience. And so now years later, three years from now, you know, I can say in a way it was a, it was a good thing but I don't want anyone out there to think, oh, Brennan's always been this, you know, seemingly self-righteous and, you know, he speaks out and he knows all about these things. That's just not true. It's and not I'm, true at all. And, and I'm sure, you know, many of your critics will say, you know, you, you talk a lot about racism and, and all of these problems, but what about the music? Well, I, I want to ask you, what what about the music? I mean, in in your in your perfect world, if you could draw the picture for what your experience as a black conductor uh, could be, what 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 would be that experience for you? Well, you know, I I I wish that you know one day I could perform, you know, all of who I am, you know, and you know, instead of being judged you know, through a racist lens, uh, lens, you know, I, I wish that that, you know, could happen with, with any orchestra, um, that I, you know, go to, I mean, that's just not going to happen, um, in my lifetime. I, you know, even though meritocracy doesn't work, meritocracy doesn't work in society. Meritocracy, of course, um, isn't functioning in classical music. Um, it has nothing to do with how good you are. Um, the position you get has nothing necessarily how good you are. It's a, a lot of um, political things that go into it. But I just, I think I'm like every other artist in the sense that I really want to be valued first and foremost for the art that I produce and the sound that I um, create. I don't know if necessarily there's a benchmark. Of course, we want to make a living doing this. Mm-hmm. We want to conduct as much as possible and we want to make music. We want to be allowed to make music on the highest level. Um, I think that there's a concern that, um, you know, there's never been a black music director of a major American orchestra, uh, at least a top 15 and I believe top 20 American orchestra. And either we're inept or something needs to, to change. Something really needs, we really need to look at why that is. Um, when you can look at Germany, which has a, you know, um, also rather abhorrently racist um, past and still has a lot of racist problems. But yet, you know, Dean Dixon was able to be chief of Frankfurt. Mm-hmm. And, um, and you also had, you know, Hazel Harrison, as we talked about before, the pianist had performed the Berlin Philharmonic in 1903. So you have all of these exceptions. Germany has made all of these consistent exceptions for uh, African-American artists. And America hasn't. And that's something we, we really need to look at. So and ideally, I, I would love to be looked at for my art, first and foremost, over race. And, and I think that just makes me the same with, with any other artist. 
But it seems like really centering the, uh, you, you mentioned the exceptions that, that they have allowed. You know, centering those exceptions to many would um, w- w- would elicit the response. You see, we don't have problems. We we have uh, we have Brandon Keith Brown doing the, the Black History Month program, you know, exceptions like those. Why is it, uh, or, or, or would you say that centering the conversation and and disqualifying racism around those exceptions, you know, why? why uh, surely you would, you would say that that is you know inappropriate to do to to write off the the historical and contemporary uh, racist practices based on those exceptions. Um, Garrett, orchestras will have worked towards equality when they give us access to the the Western canon. When we're conducting the canon for subscription concerts, the center of, of, of classical music, what inspired me and what has inspired many people to become conductors, to become uh, professional classical musicians. Um, what we've studied mostly in school, if they give us access to the canon, for instance, conducting the Wagner opera at the Met, conducting um, um, Rigoletto in, in, in lyric, conducting La Boheme, Conducting these central pieces, that sends a message that we've gained cultural access. It sends a message to the orchestra, it sends a message to the organization, it sends a message to the audience, and it sends a message to society. So, you know, if you have a conductor who's doing Wagner um, at Lyric or Lyric Opera, um, for example, what does that tell the audience? It, it, it makes the audience feel a little bit different about little old Brendan Brown sitting next to them. When the conductor is black in the pit, you know, I might not have had, you know, I wrote about the lady who asked me to go sit somewhere else at the Lyric Opera um, in, that, in that article, that piece I wrote. You know, if there was somebody black on stage conducting, maybe she would have thought, hmm, it's kind of interesting. I mean, it, maybe it would have been a different different dynamic or maybe she wouldn't have came at all <laughs> right you know right. and maybe she wouldn't have want to see that and that and i'm laughing but that's that's also a big fear of administrators because i've had administrators tell me uh listen brandon our audience is old and white and there's just really no way to market you i mean i've been told that over the phone um by an orchestra in florida actually um so i i know that they they don't hire us for those reasons. But then when you put us on stage, there's probably a number of people that will never come, of course, um, because we're there. But once we're granted access and trusted with the canonical repertoire, we're, we're, we're starting to reach towards equality um, of engagements in classical music. You know, this, this thing that is completely um, codified by white supremacy um, de facto, because all the people who make the decisions um, for anything, what is high art, what is good, what is bad, are white. And, and they fought to keep it this way. And they made it this way on purpose, you know. And so once we're given access, I believe, to this, you know, sacred canon, I think that we'll start to see equality. And, and I'm not saying that just in my, my interest as a, as a conductor. Um, you know, because we all, that's, this is really like the, the repertoire that we want to do. And it's wonderful to do Martin Luther King concerts, everything, but you end up working one month out of the year, mostly, you know, it's a joke amongst all of us black conductors, you know, 
that's uh, when we're most employed. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> and, and, and we do Fourth of July and, and family concerts and things like this with major orchestras. But why aren't we being asked to do the Bruckner Symphony or the Mahler Symphony? So, so, you would, you, so would you consider broadening the canon a, a solution to this? What if, you know, what if Duke Ellington was put on the same pedestal, if it's ever possible, as, as the Bach and the, and the Beethoven? Is widen, widening the canon a possible solution? Or, or do you think, you know, it, it's just necessary to, I, I don't know, it, it's difficult for me, Brandon, because I, I feel like there is implicit bias in maintaining the canon, if that makes sense, and in saying that this Bruckner symphony is intrinsically better and higher art than this um, William Grant Still symphony. Mm-hmm. Well, there, you've got a good point there. Um, it, it, I think I, I am under the same um, type of, um, you know, have the same ideology that, you know, if it's something that's hundreds of years old and it's, you know, Bruckner's not, but you know, Mozart and, and mm-hmm. these old composers that have stood the test of time, that there is this firmness of legs, that these pieces are able to walk around longer and they're able to go farther farther in distance. Um, and so there there is a, there's a lot of problems, I think, in my training and in the training of a lot of artists that, that have been under this sort of very conservative uh, conservatory um, type of thinking that we do prize certain genres over other ones. Um, in my case, it's out of ignorance uh, because I don't play a lot of that music and I don't conduct um, a lot of that music. Uh, I, I know that's odd, uh, but in, in Germany, they don't ask me to do, um, only one orchestra has asked me to do American orchestras, American um, music. Mm-hmm. They've asked me to do uh, uh, they've asked me to do Bruckner, um, my first Bruckner symphony. I thought they were out of their mind, but <laughs> I, it actually went well. And I fell in love with, um, deeper love with Bruckner. And they asked me to do Mozart. They asked me to do Beethoven. They asked me to do, they, they don't even bat an eye. It's not even a, a question. Um, I, I will tell you this. There is a pigeonholing of repertoire that a lot of conductors, uh, black conductors, resent. And I think that it has caused a lot of us to be a little bit wary. Hmm. When we start to be only asked to do Bernstein, only asked to do um, Gershwin, only asked to do um, William Graham Still, only asked to do um, you know, these type of composers, and then we say, can we do Dvorak? No, we can't. No. No, this is not, that's too, that's, you're asking too much. And, and, or, or Copeland or, or Copeland. And, and of course, these are all extraordinary. Um, right. Composers. Of course. But when you're asked to do only those and you say, can I please bring my Mozart in it? And you're suddenly not trusted enough to program it. You start to become very, very wary of, um, of what you're doing. And, and, and this is true. I'm not sure if you're aware of it, but a lot of Americans, when you come to Germany, were asked immediately to do American music. I have been very, very, very lucky. I am one of the rare cases where I was, ne- I was never asked early. My first concert was Carl Amadeus Hartmann, Wagner, and Poulenc. And nothing to do at all uh, with, with American music. And 
I'm never I'm never even questioned to do uh, American music, but it's 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 just like French conductors. French conductors get pigeonholed to do French music, sure, because because nobody else. A lot of people don't want to do it because it's really hard. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it's really hard to conduct. Sure, and it's hard to put together with the orchestra. And they say, oh, the French. But then the French conductors they want to conduct American music, of right. course, you right. know, because they love jazz and they're really great at doing jazz. And they want to do jazz and they want to do uh, Bruckner and Brahms. And then they don't get to do it. And so I think I have a, a fear of being pigeonholed. And, um, and so that's one of the reasons why I, um, I may project this, this favoritism for more for these old things. I know I'm, I'm not the only, the only one. Um, but you're right. The, the canon really needs to be fought um, I mean, I consider Gershwin American Paris. It's it's a part of a canon, but it's it's not part of the old 18th century right, um, right. canon, which has more of the roots, the roots of music, you know, in it. It's it's a it's on the branches from. I consider it as part of the branches of, of um, you know, the the base of the tree. So as um, you know, as you move forward, as the situation um, at Brown, um, you know, becomes less and less um, a definitive part of who you are. You know, when, when folks, if folks don't know you personally, you know, as you continue to travel the world, you know, leading these uh, incredible orchestras and growing your profile as as one of the world's most significant um, con- conductors. Um, what 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 is what is your message to people? What, what what do you have to say to those who um, still doubt? You know the the relationship between race and classical music, and the negative impact that you have personally experienced from it, and the negative impact that countless other black conductors experience from that culture worldwide. Well, I help them with German orchestras. I speak very frankly, and I, and when I sit down with the director or the intendant, you know. I, I tell them, you know, I'm an activist in, in classical music and we start talking about race and they, normally they say, well, we don't think about those things. And I said, well, when's the last time you've seen a, a black conductor on the cover of a CD? And they're like, never. And I have never seen one um, in my life. Maybe you have, Garrett. Um, I don't know that. But, I have, maybe James DePriest, but, uh, but other than but that, But that was no. long ago. And right. He's not, and he, and we, yeah, in rest Germany, in peace have, to him, yeah. Yes, in Germany we have CD stores. I don't think they have CD stores in America. Not so much anymore, anymore no. Um, but they still have them in Germany. It's a and it's a big deal. They're big, and uh, like Dusman, and uh, it's it's all Deutsche Grammophon. It's all white artists, white Asian artists typically, um, and they're like, okay. And I said, and would you wake up in the morning and think of me conducting a Bruckner symphony? And normally they laugh and they go, no, I wouldn't let you do a, a Bruckner. Bruckner symphony and and you know they just some of them are really honest because they just they say well we just wouldn't think of a black person doing a Bruckner symphony you have to be old and white you know and having an accent and and that's where I get them and that's where I'm able to start you know having a dialogue well this is implicit bias that you have it doesn't mean necessarily that you know I'm not able to um to produce a convincing performance and in Bruckner or or what have you because of the country I come from and my my race and ethnicity um, necessarily. So honestly, the the conversations that I've had and I have them always, you know, always with orchestras that have decided to hire me, where they call me and they say we want to hire you. I I tell them 
and with orchestras that I'm approaching, you know, because I want them to to hire me. Mm-hmm. Because my feeling now after Brown is that I want people to be comfortable with who I am and with who I am as a person and with who I am as an artist. And if you can't talk about racism, you'll never be comfortable with me. Right. You won't a- be as we've said before, you're always reality. black. Yeah. <laughs> yes, I'm, I'm always black. But, but this is something black artists don't realize and white artists certainly don't. But this is something a lot of black artists don't realize. They think, oh, God, if I talk about race, first and foremost, they're never going to hire me again and all of this sort of stuff. But there are so many, so many things that are against them when they step in the door. If the slightest thing goes wrong and it doesn't work out, you're going to be judged far more harshly than the, young, the other young white conductor who's given so many more chances because he's relatable to the orchestra administration and, and the maestro, um, the music director of the orchestra has typically brought them in because they had a related a relationship of relatability. Um, so I always talk about it. When I went to South Africa, it was it was very easy mm-hmm. um, because they really encouraged me. The director there was like, "You must talk about this. Please stop." The players, I, I thought it was really touching because I was in my dressing room before the second concert and. Musicians came in three, and they said, "Thank you so much for the for the the week with us. Please don't stop talking about racism. We need you to do this. We need you to keep doing this. Don't stop. Don't be discouraged." By and I was like, "Okay." I mean, it really threw me off guard. You know, it's five minutes before the concert. There's, and oh, go ahead. I mean, it, it was. It, it it was let me know that I'm going in the right direction because obviously when I'm writing articles and and things like this you know you're you're writing into darkness and you're not sure if it's really really resonating now I'm I'm starting to get some feedback um, in particular I want to get feedback from the black community because I I don't want to um, feel like I'm speaking for all of of black people, mm-hmm. you know, because that's, but the, the thing is, you know, people say, well, I don't feel that way. Well, if you say that you don't feel that way, what you're doing is individualizing racism as a system. You're saying that racism is an e- event that it didn't, because this didn't happen to you. It doesn't mean that it doesn't happen to a large, mm-hmm. large variety of people. That's an excellent and maybe, point. It, and maybe it did happen to you and you just didn't notice it. You know, it's, it's, it's like me, you know, all through, all through school, except when I got to Northwestern, um, all through school, I never had any racism in all throughout high school, North Carolina School of the Arts and Oberlin. Of course, not Oberlin, you know, into the Underground Railroad and the first place mm-hmm. to ex- except blacks. Yeah, yeah. I had no racism, none. I wouldn't even think it, any part of the day that, you know, that I would have any racism, you know, and most of the time I didn't you know, have a, a, a lot of racism, but Brown was the biggest slap in the face. It changed me forever. It's always going to be something there. It's not something that's going to fade away um, so quickly. It's always going to be a reference point in my career. It's always going to be mentioned. It's always going to be questioned. Um, but now I'm ready and prepared to respond. There's someone listening right now who I'm sure wants uh, to learn how they can learn more about the things you've written, your experiences. Maybe there's someone out there um, ready to hire you to uh, to uh, lead a performance of that Bruckner Symphony. How, how can how can folks reach out to you and 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 get in contact with you? Well, of course, you can go to my website, uh, Brandon Keith Brown, K E I T H, Brandon Keith Brown 
medium.com. A lot of my, my writings are on medium.com and you can just search for my name. Medium's a, um, a large writing platform. Anybody can present there. If you're not a subscription holder, I think it's $5 a month, you can read three articles. Uh, I think only three articles a month or something like that. But you can uh, search for me there. You can read my writing. I also have YouTube, but pretty much all of my stuff on YouTube is on my website. Um, I'm using Instagram a lot. Uh, it's very positive. It's just branded Keith Brown conductor. And I would be really happy to have conversations with anybody out there who's listening on, on Instagram. I'll, uh, I'll pull this around full circle. So, you know, in, in honor of your birthday, um, if, if you could, uh, choose the, um, you know, the, the repertoire for a concert for you to just go and sit back and just enjoy a, a beautiful birthday, um, at, in the concert hall, what, what would that program be? Well, oh, <laughs> well, if it's, if it's with, if it's with a, a good orchestra, meaning an orchestra that can do historical performance, sure, <laughs> and and an orchestra that that uh, has a good conductor or no conductor at all, because I I I like to believe that the conductor should become less and less necessary, and I also believe that the best music making happens when the conductor is um, out of the picture. I believe it. Um, I would like to hear a concert of all Mozart. A Mozart concert. I, I, you know, I am a very, very old-fashioned and musician. You know, just I only need Mozart for the rest. I don't need any other composer. I love most of them deeply. But I don't need anyone except Mozart. And, and my teacher, Gustav Meyer at Peabody, we, this was something that made us very close because we both, you know, we'd sit in classes like, he's the best. We don't need anyone else except him, right? I was like, absolutely. You don't need anyone else. He expresses everything that um, I feel. I feel like I get him. I know that maybe it sounds a little snotty because Mozart is one of the um, most difficult composers to uh, interpret and, and also difficult to conduct. But for me, I have a very clear picture when I, when I look at the score of what he wants. And sometimes it's wrong. And I prove my, my interpretation is wrong through studying the music and analysis, but he speaks just so purely and directly and clearly to me. Um, and you know, he's probably the only one that I get this real sense of, of gratification when I open a score of Mozart and start to study. It's the only one. I mean, other composers, you know, like when you get Brahms, Brahms is wonderful. I love Brahms. We talked a little bit about Brahms. Maybe you'll mention, you know, your love for Brahms too. <laughs> you don't, very I funny. Know you don't, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, Brahms is fantastic, but Brahms is very frightening. Brahms is very difficult to conduct. It never gets easier. The transitions are very hard. You have a lot of tons and tons of questions, and you have to struggle uh, a lot, a lot more. Personally, I do with Brahms music than I do with, with Mozart. So, I mean, I would love to sit down and hear an extraordinarily well-played uh, Mozart. I'm thinking of um, Pyrrhus, piano, uh, Pyrrhus playing the piano because I just listened to her last night, mm -hmm. um, playing, playing any of the piano concertos, really. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, that would be a wonderful birthday concert for me today.
Wow, I think I'll have to listen to a, a nice Mozart uh, piano concerto today. Brandon, um, I hope this uh, these have been the first two of many conversations we have. Uh, thank you so much for your work, uh, and, and thank you for being a part of Triloquy. I really appreciate it. No, it's a great honor for me. Thank you for having me on, Garrett. Brandon said, just because it isn't happening to you doesn't mean it isn't happening. I mean, it's such, a, it's such a simple concept, seemingly, but when you really think about the way um, just that concept is missed, how that target is missed over and over again, uh, it, it's it's really something to consider, you know? Yeah. Uh, you know, just take some of the stories, you know, even what he hasn't mentioned uh, in our two conversations, just, you know, his day to day in Germany. If, if you follow him on social media, you know, he always has a story to tell and Boy, what what levels of work we have to do. We do, all of but, it. But um, you know, he's. It, it sounds like um, you know um, the, the despite the uh, the COVID nineteen um, epidemic, you know, he's he's still doing his best and um, doing some good work. So uh, I really appreciate uh, Brandon Keith Brown for uh, coming on and and offering a take. You know, it's it's. It's hard to explain, Scott, but there's a level of just nerve it takes to really put yourself out there and, and call these issues out, especially in, 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 a, in a field like classical music. Yeah, yeah, he's got a, a major target on him, that's for sure. But um, hats off for the courage, though. Yeah, I, I really appreciate everything he had to say. All right, so um, we're going to lighten things up a little bit uh, on the next opus of Triloquy. Um, it's our ode to uh, 420, so cheers, Scott. <laughs> What's 420? Oh, well, if you don't know, I guess you'll just have to uh, <laughs> tune in. Uh, we, we speak with uh, a composer uh, from the East Coast. His name is John Del Vento. Um, we have a really great conversation about music education. You know, uh, something important, I think, to think about as we uh, consider what changes we need to make in education, you know, moving forward in the mm -hmm. Um, in in light of this epidemic, uh, this was taped a few weeks back, um, but uh, but I think it's a really great conversation that you'll enjoy, um, and also the uh, the premiere of our new theme. So I uh, hope you can uh, stay tuned for the next opus of Triloquy. Be well. <laughs> 